The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Gail Myers. Dr. Gail Myers has a doctorate in anthropology from The Ohio State University. For the last 15 years, she's been lecturing, researching, teaching, and writing about, and recently filming, African-American farmers, sharecroppers, and gardeners. And in 2004, Dr. Myers started the nonprofit organization Farms to Grow, Inc., to facilitate avenues to support African-Americans and other socially disadvantaged farmers. Currently, she is completing a documentary film titled Rhythms of the Land, which will focus on the stories and legacies of the African-American farming experiences. Dr. Myers, welcome. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, we've known each other for just a few years, and I've always been so fascinated with your stories that I wanted you to share them with our listeners. Now, I'm curious. So you grew up in Florida, and then you you went to different universities along the East Coast. I want to know how you went from your childhood in Florida up to Ohio, studied anthropology, and what led you to the farming stories. Wow. Yeah, it's an unlikely story because growing up in Daytona Beach and being a total beach fanatic, I went to the beach practically every day that I could either ride my bike or drive my car and had no intentions on growing my food or really having a love of the land like I do now. My mom grew up on a farm and every summer they would take my sisters, we would have summer trips and we would go visit My sisters would stay, but I would have some excuse why I couldn't stay. I started working very young at 12, so I was working in a a, a project, uh, you know, where they have, I think it was the CETA program or something. Uh I always had something to do and, and just really didn't enjoy that hot summer, the flies, the smell of the, of all the, the farm animals. It was not something that appealed to me. So as a kid, I, you know, this work that I'm doing now, I, you know, I would, would have said, no, there's no way that I'd be working with farmers. She went to Florida State and uh, ended up getting my master's in anthropology and applied anthropology at Georgia State. I was really just content to just do some master's level work because, you know, I wanted to really, I got an applied anthropology because I really wanted to get involved in the work. Just I didn't want to have that theoretical relationship I wanted to apply what I was learning to solving real problems. In uh, finishing up my work at Georgia State and talking to some of my colleagues and, you know, sort of got a whiff that really if I wanted to manage my own programs, I needed to have a Ph.D. Um, At the same time, I was also working with uh, Morehouse College and Morehouse School of Medicine and got encouraged by a group of professors who uh, had a program that they were developing in Ecuador. And so they had a relationship with Ohio State because Ohio State had a field school in Ecuador. And they were going to combine some of their efforts to work with the Chota. Chota are a group of people who ended up being marooned during the transatlantic slave trade. 
and they ended up going into the bush in near the rainforest, and it just was about 1940s and 1950s that they began to come down and to integrate with the um, Spanish-speaking communities in Ecuador. So they were eager to, Professor Morehouse were eager to go over, and I was one of a rare breed of anthropologists. So they said, Gail, why don't you go to Ohio State if you're going to go get a PhD? It would be a great opportunity. So I went to Ohio State University, like most anthropologists, planning to go abroad to study the other, if you will. My first week there, I had a conversation with my advisor who worked with Amish farmers. And the topic of African-American farmers came up during that first week in September of 97. And I didn't know anything about African-American farmers. I left his office thinking, you know, I shouldn't, that should be, if someone asked me that question again, I don't want to say, you know, I don't know what's going on with African-American farmers. So I went to the library to find out. And uh, in 97 was the very early days of the Pigford versus USDA litigation. And so as I began to scroll what was coming up in my search, there wasn't really anything there. There wasn't any books, nothing really documented the African-American farming experience, and I found that very odd. And so just curious about that. During the course of completing coursework, you know, we had to conduct interviews. And I remember I conducted my first interview in October with a woman who uh, is an African-American woman and a historian in a part of uh, Ohio, and her family had a very rich history as a matter of fact, they ended up coming to Ohio in 1833, being uh, freed as part of the executive will of their plantation owner in West Virginia. said, I want you to purchase land for these people in Ohio. Well, they never got their land. They were beaten back. And so her, as a his, what she's done as a historian is to document her great-great-uncle, who was nine years old in 1883, 18- yeah, 1833, York Riles was his name. So she started telling me these stories, and I just like, wow, why don't I know this? So anyway, that very first interview, it just really kind of pulled a cord in me emotionally because the stories that she shared with me were pretty sad, and I felt like I had lived a pretty sheltered life that I didn't know these stories. And so I began to get deeper and deeper interviewing. Then I eventually started interviewing farmers, and I remember the day that I filed my CHOTA file, because I was also collecting references and research background for the people in Ecuador. And I remember I filed that, and I said, no, I'm not going to Ecuador. I'm staying right here. <laughs> uh, and I thought I'd go to the south to do my work. And as I began to look at farmers in Ohio, I began to say, you know, I can interview black farmers in Ohio. So that's what I did for my dissertation My dissertation topic was sustaining communities, African-American farmers, adaptations, traditions, and farming ways. So it was just a a marriage for me of sort of the passion, the the desire to tell this story, because as I said, when I first started doing this stuff, looking for information on black farmers, there wasn't anything there that I could find except the litigation stuff. And I thought, wow. That as an anthropologist who, you know, someone whose job is to document and, and preserve histories and stories, I thought this is a story that obviously has not been told and needs to be preserved. Mainly because as I began to interview the farmers, they started telling me stories about how they practiced and their worldview of, of stewarding the land, 
stories that I read in the textbooks in college at, at Ohio State in the classroom, and they were using terms to describe this stuff as sustainable agriculture or biodynamics or permaculture. And I was hearing Mr. Chambers say, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm re- rotating, I'm recycling, I'm doing this, I'm thinking of community, all those principles of sustainable agriculture, and I wondered why that story hadn't been told. So I basically ended up forming the organization Farms to Grow in 2004 because after I was another sort of end of an experience story, I was finishing up my Ph.D. and my classmates were applying for teaching positions and other kinds of research positions, and they said, Gil, what are you going to do? I said, I I don't know, but I, I feel like I got farms to grow. And so this spirit of wanting to do something with this information that I had and these stories that I had been collecting, uh, it just, it, you know, again, that, that same chord stayed with me. So yeah. 15 years later, <laughs> here I am. I have to ask you a couple of questions here because sure. I want to know how you found the farmers to interview. Wow, word of mouth. Uh-huh. Um, and, and honestly, I can really say grace of God. Uh-huh. Um, first, I started with my closest circle. So I talked to friends who had relatives who were still farming in the South. So f- I talked to about five to seven farmers on the phone in Georgia and Alabama and sharing with me their stories. Then I began to make some infiltration, if you will, <laughs> into some of the USDA inner circles, like I had some some folks that became my friends at the NRCS. And they said, well, you know, i got a couple of farmers. I can pick up the phone right now and see if they'll talk to you. Mm-hmm. So I got inroads that way. And then one farmer said, you know, let me let you talk to my cousin. He lives right around the corner. He's back. See that farm back there, back the road, they say. So, I, you know, it was it was word of mouth. Then when I began doing my research, you know, sort of full official research, I was able to access a couple of lists. And then I sent some official letters and asking, um, you know, doing phone calls. A lot of letters came back, cold calling, and just kind of doing the archival research, the typical stuff that an anthropologist would do, just coming up with some names. Oh, this might be a farmer, seeing if I could cross-reference that with this that may have a phone number. And back at the time, when I was doing a lot of this work, in the 90, late 90s, a lot of this stuff wasn't in the digital format. So I had to call the microfiches and the hard copies of a lot of stuff. Right now, you can kind of type in the zip code for a courthouse or something, and some stuff would come up on the computer. But I didn't have that luxury. So, yeah, it was really just going about it the basic basic way, gaining enough trust in people that they would give you another referral. They would open their door, first of all and then give you a referral. I was fortunate to, in one family that I interviewed, I interviewed three generations of women who had been farmers. Hmm. The mother, the daughter, and the grandmother. And where was this? This was in Ohio. Okay. So, yeah, it was um, it was a blessing, honestly, that so many doors were open. As was, you mentioned in my introduction, the film, Rhythms of the Land, that's pretty much how... The four weeks on the road with me and my camera and a car, actually two cars, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of hard to put 8,000 miles on one car in four weeks. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I went through one car and I had to return that one. The, the AC stopped working because I was in Texas and Louisiana and 
mean, there were temperatures of 108 when I was doing this tour for this film this summer. And the same thing, I had a few referrals lined out, and I had a few places that I knew I was going to stay, but everything else was really by just the sort of grace of God. How many I only stayed in a hotel two nights for four weeks of this last, you know, this tour uh, for the film, and people took me to other farms and sharecroppers and people that had been sharecroppers. And did you go alone, Dr. Myers? I did. I did. And how many farmers did you... Get my in- camera. <laughs> yeah. How many farmers did you interview total? For this last project this summer, yes, for Rhythms of the for Land, the film. Uh, 30. 30. And so you're stopping there. You've got all your well, data now. Yeah, I had a I had a designated... No, that's just for that part one of, of Rhythms. I had a designated amount of time because I'm also involved in, you know, working with Farms to Grow, so that's the amount of time that I had to take away from the other routine work that I'm involved with there. <laughs> I've got to interrupt yeah. here for just one moment and let our sure. let our listeners know that we are speaking with Dr. Gail Myers, who's an anthropologist, and she is doing a new film called Rhythms of the Land, and it's going to focus on the stories and legacies of the African-American farming experiences. And it sounds like you've been collecting stories from African-American farmers all over the country. And I remember one group of farmers you had told me about when I first met you were a group of farmers in Kansas that I had no idea that that this was... Nicodemus. Yes. Tell me about Nicodemus. Well, the town itself was one of the towns that a lot of African Americans migrated to moving out west. I think Nail Carter calls it one of the exodus, and she talks about that migration, exodusters. So there were a lot of all-black towns. Nicodemus happens to be one of the few that are still incorporated, and there are a few people that are living there, but it's now become on a National Park Service historic site. But I guess about Fifteen years ago, very early, I met a man who invited me to talk in Omaha, and he was not a member of, of the community of Nicodemus, but just wanted to do something, and he said, "Let's can we get together? So we wrote a grant to put a mill, to help put a mill for their wheat, because these were wheat farmers. And about 130 years ago, they, the farmers, the, these are descendants of very early wheat producers, And what they'd have to do is take their mill to the elevator. And 120 years ago or so, they said, we wanted a mill, and they never did. So it was just just wonderful sort of, you know, justice that we were able to help write a grant. And so we wrote a grant. We retrofitted a school. The grant was to purchase a mill. For about five years, we were able to really be instrumental in getting the Kansas black farmers wheat to the market in the form of a a value-added product in the form of flour and pancake mix. But like any new venture, you know, it takes time. And so the project wasn't successful uh, in the long term, but we were able to give some attention to some farmers who had felt abandoned for so many years but trying to get their wheat independently uh, processed. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an organization that they still are in operation, and uh, they still are involved in, in local activities, and I think, the farmers still do what, you know, now they are back to taking their wheat to the elevator. But, yeah, that was a wonderful success story. Mm-hmm. And um, we look forward to 
being able to, you know, because they want to get the mill back up, but, you know, in like most small towns like that, there's no employment. So getting people to be uh, in place to operate the mill, to see it as a, uh, you know, to place to raise a family, so there's so many precarious realities mm-hmm. that are involved in setting up. And in, in, in Nicodemus, it's a very isolated part of Kansas. And Where so is it in the state exactly? It is, well, I flew into Kansas City, and it is all the way to the, I guess, to the west okay. of uh, the state. Okay. And, yeah. Well, tell me something. So mm-hmm. you've been interviewing farmers really ever since you got your doctorate in anthropology, but somehow you got from Ohio State to Oakland, California, where you started your urban gardens program. And yeah. to me, that was a throwback to your work, your master's work, where you worked with youth and yes, especially absolutely. understanding absolutely. violence. Yeah. And I'm wondering... I, I'm wondering how your work with the garden has influenced your opinion about are gardens a good intervention tool to reduce youth violence? Oh, my goodness. What an incredible question and how perceptive. And I think part of my spirit took me to this work with youth because all of what I heard when I worked with these young people talking about violence, it just felt like the work was just futile. It really did. It yeah. felt like, for me, there, I couldn't do enough. It was so systematically entrenched. And even if you worked with the one, they were just overcoming such incredible odds. Mm-hmm. When I went to food and farming, it seemed like a very powerful piece of activity. It empowered me. And when I saw the young children of the farmers that were out there, I saw the power that it seemed to give them. Yeah, where did So you... when I graduated and we began to work with youth, and again, it was quite by accident. A lot of this stuff is sort of just so happenstance, if you will, but there's no coincidences. I started working with youth out of managing a farmer's market in Bayview-Hunters Point. Bayview-Hunters Point is one of the last places that is still predominantly African-American in San Francisco. And like most African-American urban centers, it is really devoid of any real food centers. It's mostly corner convenience stores, uh, liquor stores, tobaccos. And so this farmer's market in this community was like, wow, what is this? People would walk by and they were asked, what is this? I said, it's for sale. So. During the course of being a manager there and setting up the market very early in the mornings, inevitably it would be about two or three young boys were on their bikes or sometimes walking by very early, about 7, 7.30. I would say they're 8, 9, 10, 11, and they would come and they would point to the fruit that we were setting up. <clears throat> still breaks me up as I think about it. And they would point and they go, what's that? And I said, that's a peach. They said, what's that? I said, that's a plum. These young boys had never seen fresh food. Mm-hmm. I would leave the far- farmer's market just heartbroken. I said, we got to do something. So I worked with the San Francisco Children's Council. We wrote a grant and got funded for three years through the California Department of Nutrition to put gardens and schools and daycare centers and Head Starts. So p- 
part of that work involved teaching third graders. We ended up working with third graders. Well, we actually ended up working with pre-K for our program with the kids, but eventually we got a program. We were in this school long enough for three years. The principal said, can you come and work with the schools, with our students every day or during the weekday? So we worked with third graders from 12 to 1 every Thursday, teaching them how to cook nutritiously or in the garden. So they had alternating Thursday. One week they'd go in the garden, the next week they'd go in the what they called, the boys called it nutrition class, the girls called it cooking. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw what happened to these, especially the boys, and the stu- and then the, the, the teachers and the principal noticed. They said, you all have to continue. So all of this stuff is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But what they noticed was, and what I noticed, because I would spend some time on the campus, when I'm, when I'm walking around in the halls and even on the basketball courts, I would see the boys push. They would always push and give me this, give me that. They never argued in the garden. They seemed mm-hmm. like when they came through those gates, it was a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. There, I saw their posture become more, less of um, having to posture for protection, and they were just so, they were indefensive. They didn't seem to need to protect anything. They were planting the flowers. They did the most beautiful job on the flowers, as a matter of fact. And it was a life-changing experience for a couple of them that I know that said, one of them asked me, they said, what do you call this work? <laughs> I said, it's, it's gardening. He said, this is what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Well, I so want... it, it is. It, I say that it can really impact youth in the city. It can give them a sense of purpose and a sense of power. I want to ask you where you think that sense of empowerment is coming from. I think it comes from the magic of them seeing a seed grow, seeing something that ends up on their plate growing from a seed. Because hmm. we start from, most of what our programs do, we start from clearing the, the, the area. They help us with clearing, getting the soil ready, planting the seed, watching it grow till it's time to, tr- to transplant it watching it being transplanted until it's time to being harvested most of the time. And the fact that they can actually make that happen. Nobody said, watch me do it. They did it. They were actually a part of that magic. Right. I think the other thing that from a choosing healthy food perspective, again, I, I've seen the most success to me around with the boys knowing that, wow, I didn't know that I could actually make a healthy snack. Like we would do things in our cooking so that we know that if the parents weren't around, they could go in and get a bagel and some peanut butter and some raisins or some pretzels, you know, the more healthy snacks, and make choices for themselves. But we wanted to give them the information. So we empowered them with this information, and they became inquisitive around, why don't we have more of this kind of food around in my neighborhood? Mm. Well, you know, that maybe you can change that. Yes. Now, yes. it doesn't have to be the forever. Well, so giving them power to say, you know, maybe I can make a difference if, not, if nothing but growing my own. Mm-hmm. We're big on, on self-sufficiency and big on growing your own. How are I, these... I really began to appreciate uh, something Frederick Douglass said, because I've seen both spectrums of the working with the future farmers and working with farmers that are five, six generations in their 90s, that it's easier to build strong children than to 
rebuild broken men. That's a beautiful quote. We still are challenged. This is something Frederick Douglass said. We're still challenged. As I, we work with the, a lot of the farmers by them just feeling the hopelessness, the years of being disconnected from the market. And I, I see these younger farmers, these beginning farmers, these 30, 40, even 50-year-old farmers that are embracing this agriculture, that are eager, they're taking on, uh, you know, much, much more modern, if you will, technology with the hoop houses and the aquaponics, still bringing on the, the traditions, but they're coming into the agriculture with bright eyes. Mm-hmm. And we know that earliest we can start from pre-K on up, even in the womb, really, that we can really empower new generation of, of consumers that are demanding quality food and of producers that are producing the food that they need for their communities. We only have a couple of minutes left. So in a nutshell, tell me what you hope to accomplish with your film. I hope to accomplish telling a story that has seldom been told. I want to accomplish bringing young people back to these stories as we bring light to all of the wonders of resiliency and, and how communities were felt responsible for each other. I want to bring the general public awareness of forgotten farmers, if you will, mm-hmm. people that have been doing more with less and they have been doing it with the love of the land in mind. They've been the stewards. These are farmers. They, they don't, as a matter of fact, some of them don't even call themselves farmers. They say we're stewards. Mm-hmm. I'm always humbled every time I hear, hear those stories. But yeah, and I want to accomplish giving other people permission to go back to their roots in the South or wherever and find out from their grandparents or anyone that they knew that may have farmed the land or are still gardening, you know, what was it like? How did you do it? What did you take to your view of of how you farmed? And I think it would be good, too, to address some of the struggles within... Do you find that some... People, because of the negativity associated with farming in slave-like conditions, are reluctant to go back to farming? There are people that are. They start out being reluctant. There are lots of those stories. But what's happening, and I don't know if it's some bandwagon effect, but is it the attention to local food? I see a lot more people in the urban the urbanization of agriculture a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, people, either if they're apartment dwellers or homeowners, they want to garden. Now, these were the same people that may have said that statement. No, I'm not going to do that. But food prices, the, I don't know if it's the, the, the fat around doing it. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to direct people to your website so yes. we can go farms to grow.com farms to grow.com and rhythms of the land rhythms of the land.com and I won't, we've been speaking with Dr. Gail Myers she holds a doctorate in anthropology from the Ohio State University she has been working with youth as well as interviewing African American farmers about their farming experiences fascinating topic we need to know more farms to grow.com rhythms of the land.com thank you for capturing these stories, Dr. Myers. Thank you for creating this film. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios. 
by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Myers, thank you so much for being my guest and for doing this work. Pleasure and an honor, Melinda. Thank you for your interest in this work. Mm-hmm.